Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we have the next of our special broadcasts featuring highlights from the recent 2021 UBS European Conference. Regular listeners to this programme will recall both from last week and indeed from past iterations that the European Conference is a forum for leading political, economic and monetary policy experts to debate the pivotal questions shaping the investment landscape. Over the past decade, the conference has become one of the most important European industry meetings for institutional investors, corporates and policymakers alike. This week, we continue our coverage with highlights from a panel chaired by UBS CEO Ralph Hammers on frontiers in sustainable finance and some learnings from a panel on the journey to net zero, COP and innovation. Let's start with some of Ralph Hammers' introductory remarks on sustainable investment. Here he is. Sustainable finance, we all know and realise, is, is, is not just something that is, uh, is a topic that will uh, be there only for a couple of years. Now, sustainable finance is, is here to stay. It is something that is absolutely necessary. The transition to a low-carbon economy is one that I, I think nobody disputes anymore. The only question is, how do we move there? And we all know that you know, it needs about $3.5 trillion of investments annually until uh, 2030. And it may seem like an obstacle, uh, the huge amount, but in my view, it's also a opportunity. Many clients, as I said, are already convinced that this needs to be done. So they're looking for investment opportunities. It is important for our institutional clients as well and for institutions in general. It is important for us. We, we can actually help facilitate bringing supply and demand together, innovation to investors, et cetera, et cetera. It's also an important discussion for regulators and governments as to how can they actually also help moving society, but also moving money in the right direction. Because in the end, as much as it is needed, it is an amazing investment opportunity. The question now is, so how can we ensure that, uh, that you as investors and, and, and our clients are driving capital towards the three and a half trillion that I was just mentioning. It's an amazing amount and we're not there yet. Uh, so there's quite some work to do. And I think that a lot of us think that, okay, by coming out with, I don't know, a new commitment or a refreshed commitment or a more ambitious commitment uh, in terms of net zero, for example, uh, that that is what will do it. New policies that you can have, uh, we update our targets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is important, don't get me wrong, but it shows because it shows the aspirations that many of the governments, but also specifically companies uh, and, and, and institutions have in order to support this move. But it's only about aspirations. Reality is different. So we need research, we need development, we need capital expenditure to make these aspirations also reality. And then, you know, the transition to net zero will only really start to happen. Ralph Hammers and his friends on stage at UBS's London base and those joining remotely picked up on a number of key announcements out of COP26. Several examples of unprecedented developments were mentioned, in particular from Business and Finance Day, with a focus on the amount of capital in play and the strengthening of explicitly financial alliances in the space. 
Perhaps the key breakthrough in terms of financial reporting was the announcement by the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation trustees of the creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board. A major step towards globally aligned ESG reporting, these standards provide the foundation for consistent and global reporting standards that will enable companies to report on ESG factors affecting their business. A breakthrough from COP, then. And of course, we also have the TCFD, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, under Mark Carney. But to be blunt, are we ever really going to have consolidated sustainable reporting standards, a proper framework that investors can really believe in? In this realm, standard setters traditionally move pretty slowly, of course. Well, David Craig is co-chair of the TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, also senior advisor to the London Stock Exchange and the former CEO of Refinitiv. David responded to a question regarding the likelihood of credible uniform accounting standards being delivered as soon as in two years, and that would be endorsed and followed everywhere, including in the US. Here's what David had to say on the matter. We're not starting from scratch, and there's a lot of work that's been done over many years, TCFD, and the six years it's been running. So I actually do believe it is possible to get there, particularly with the momentum and the scale of people recognising the size of the challenge that we have. Uh, so yes, I actually think it is possible. And if I look at what TNFD, I don't think we have any choice. I think we have to move quickly. And in a crisis, you do things differently. So we have to do that. One key question from COP26 is why we need to look at more than just emissions when we look at this area. David Craig, again. The challenge we have at the moment is we're all recognising that our economic system and our natural systems are integrated. In fact, it's very hard to find anything that we produce or we use that isn't either dependent on natural systems, biodiversity, food, agriculture, production of materials, or is impacting it in some way. Now, the problem we're trying to solve is that that risk isn't factored into our economic models. Add to that, when we talk about racing to zero for climate, one, the climate change at the moment is degrading our natural systems as well. So the very tool that we have, the rainforests, the seagrass, to remove carbon is being degraded. And the most natural and most effective systems to actually remove carbon are in the natural system. So you can't look at these things separately. If you wound back the clock, we would probably have one acronym and it would have looked at climate and nature together. But here we are now, we've got to quickly recognise that we've got to look at these two sides of the same coin and we've got to quickly create a risk management framework that's common, that's standard, that can feed into ISSB, that adopts nature risk as well as climate risk. And we need to do that quickly because if anything, the natural risk that we're experiencing in many of our production systems is almost faster than climate risk at the moment. So the crisis is almost faster than it is with climate, but they're intertwined. The first thing to do is put some definition around it. So what are the nine categories? Let's make it up. Say there's nine categories of nature risk. Is it the, the water use? Is it the pollutants in the sea? Is it the use of nitrates, fertilizers, air pollution, etc.? Let's agree on the definition, but that's our first task, which we're working on right now with our members. And then let's recognize that not every risk is as relevant to everyone. If I use Coca-Cola, for example, Coca-Cola has spent a huge amount of time looking at water use. It cannot operate its plants around the world if it runs out of water. It also needs to look at plastic because plastic, of course, is a pollutant. But those might be different risk factors from, say, Tata Steel, also another member of our group, which is looking at energy consumption and output. So I think definition is important, agreeing a standard for that. But unlike climate, if, if you emit carbon in the world, it doesn't matter what you're doing or where you are, 
your nature risk is very contextual. It does depend where you are and it does depend what you're doing. So whilst the two are intertwined, we also have to recognise that context is really important. Uh, I think Mark Carney said that our challenge with TNFD was much harder than TCFD. We do have to sort of break down that complexity and create that definition quite quickly so companies can quickly understand where to focus and which types of risks are important. One interesting aspect is what all of this means for UBS's operations. UBS CEO Ralph Hammers picks up the story. For us, this is a transition, right? So basically, we, we always try to separate what we can do ourselves for our own operations and how we can help our clients. Because in the end, you know, we're, we're a wealth manager, we're a bank. And in itself, you know, what we kind of, our footprint itself is limited to that extent. So for us, you know, in, in terms of becoming net zero by 2025, as we have committed, it is about making sure that all of the electricity that we use will come from renewable resources. For us, it's important that the, the buildings in which we house our colleagues, uh, that they have the highest sustainability standards. So that's how you move towards that one. So that, that's scope one, basically. And then uh, if, you, if you want to bring it beyond just climate, clearly there is a couple of SDGs that we have made very specific to what we want to address. Uh, for example, if it comes to if it comes to the SDGs of inequality, which is one that, that we feel is a very important one, you go to the root causes and you try to address that as well. Then you take the scope two, uh, or scope three even, and that is about how can we support our clients' transition. And, and even on the TNFD aspects here, we don't start from scratch. Because, for example, if we finance traders, palm oil traders, then basically we only deal with the companies that subscribe to the principles and the requirements that their business has to fulfill that are agreed as part of the roundtable for palm oil predictions, for example, which basically takes care of the whole value chain, uh, supply chain there, as to, and there's some nature risk in there in terms of deforestation and reforestation requirements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is already some standards per sector that we comply with and otherwise we don't do the business and clearly also there of course we applaud the further development of the TNFD because that's the next step and it will it will make it even broader if you then look at our net zero commitment on the climate side again uh, as to how we do that that is about you know coming out with a trajectories as to how our lending book for example our loan book will have to evolve, decreasing our indirect footprint. And we will come out with a, a trajectory of a, of a transition there as to how we expect our loan book to decrease in terms of indirect footprint. And you do that on the basis of, of, of some of the scenarios that you take from the IAE, the International Economic Agency. Uh, you do it on the back of science-based targets uh, for specific sectors and industries as well uh, that you take as input as well, where they expect innovation will go in a specific industry. And you take those as assumptions as to how you think the industry itself should move. And then basically you make sure that you commit to that, which basically means that you have to address it in your conversations with your clients as well. But honestly, you know, that's how we do it. But the demand from our clients is enormous. 90% of our clients have said that they want to invest, not just for the return, but in line with their values. 
and the SDGs and all of the elements that we're discussing today, whether it's TNFD, TCFD, are important values for our clients as investors. So, so that's where a lot of our attention is going. On the 2050 commitments, there remains quite a deal of uncertainty about how we get there. Are banks going to deliver? What governs the interim period? Are there specific targets? Will there be? Ralph Hammers gave this view. In your discussion with your clients, if you know there is technology available for them to make their production process far less carbon intensive, you will ask them to implement that technology. And otherwise, you will not finance them at a certain moment in time. You do have the discussion to support the transition, but if there is no willingness, for example, or if there is a real alternative, you actually start to exit. For example, coal-fired power plants at a certain moment, you exit because in the end, you know that there is alternatives out there that are just less carbon intensive. David Craig also spoke about the challenge of delivering this roadmap for financial institutions over the course of the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years and so on. Here's David. I think we've got to separate when it comes to data, the input data for the decision making and the output data, which is the targets that Ralph was talking about. Uh, but just building on what Ralph was mentioning there, the reason that we have to be holistic around all dimensions of nature and climate is there are things that we could do in the race to zero that will actually degrade the natural systems. Exactly. So if, for example, you move everyone to electric vehicles, but you're not clear on the production of the batteries and the extraction of lithium, as we all well know, that can be very, very harmful to the environment. So we've got to be holistic on this and also make sure we set targets where we're not just net zero on climate, but we're what we call nature positive. How do we ensure we're holistic around that? And there are things that can start happening now, and Ralph talked about palm oil. The fact of the matter is many companies, whether they know it or not, are investing in deforestation. I think people's awareness of this is now growing. We will not reach net zero as a planet if we continue losing a football pitch of natural forest every six seconds. We have to stop that. And I think the financing, the banks have an enormously important role because unlike emitting climate, emitting carbon is not illegal. Cutting down a forest that is protected is actually illegal. So there are other frameworks that we can use around legality as well that will do that. And we can set metrics on those. We can set metrics that say, actually, we will have no illegal forestry in our investment book by this point in time. It might sound ridiculous, but actually it's much more opaque and difficult and it's through the supply chain, all those other complexities that we need to have. But there are some things that we can do that are both qualitative on the metrics and quantitative to do that. If, and when it comes to nature, that the sort of best metric we have is water use. Water is very measurable. It's the same around the world. It's like carbon. But there are others that a more sort of difficult land use, fertilizer, ocean pollution and others. We've got to sort of think about the metric framework for that as well and that'll take us a little bit more time. But it, it is possible. What gets measured gets managed, as they say. I've grown up on that for the last 30 years and I think that's the approach that we have to take. David Craig. The panel also turned to the way that the public and private sectors work together in this space and the role of the MDBs, multilateral development banks, in addressing the challenges ahead. Janine Julo, Chief Executive Officer of the Value Reporting Foundation, had this to say. One of my worries actually right now is that pendulums always swing. And the great news was that the private sector turned out in force in Glasgow. That's great. But the private sector is not a substitute for the public sector. And so I think the next phase of this conversation needs to be 
what are the relative roles of the public and the private sector and how do they collaborate to ultimately achieve these very ambitious goals? Blended finance is one of those key tools. I think part of that is, is developing this common language. I think back to financial accounting standards developed a common language, sustainability disclosure standards develop a common language. They should be used across the public and private sectors. They should be used across public and private companies. And that gives us this, this common language then to talk about how to develop these tools. But I do feel this problem's not gonna be solved. The climate problem or the nature problem will not be solved without strong collaboration across the public and private sector. And I think talking really in a more practical level about how that actually happens has to be the next evolution of this conversation. Janine Julo there. Next up, we're going to feature some insights from a panel that built on some of these themes. Entitled Getting to Net Zero, Costs, COP and Innovation, the panel featured some more great speakers. Putting the questions to them was another former guest on this programme, Hugh Van Stienis, Senior Advisor to the UBS CEO. One particular theme Hugh Van Sienis put centre stage in the discussion was the risk of so-called greenwashing and the appetite of the whole sector to address it. Speaking on that theme and others was Curtis Ravenel, Senior Advisor to the UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance Mark Carney and a founding member of the Secretariat for the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. Here, Curtis reflects on COP26, highlighting the importance of the likes of the International Sustainability Standards Board and the GFAN, or Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Here's Curtis. The accounting frameworks are hugely important. Those are sort of foundational to all the rest as a building block. And so having the ISSB announce that they will officially form after much speculation in collaboration with the VRF and using the TCFD as a prototype for its initial climate standard, I think is is maybe not the sexiest announcement, but it's certainly one of the most important. And then the other, of course, is GFANS. And under GFANS, there's a whole lot. You know, it's important to notice that what the firms that have joined the various alliances that are part of GFANS have committed to transition their entire business activity to net zero. Not immediately. This takes, we're moving a tanker here, but this is part of the Race to Zero campaign. It's important to remember that this is all sort of rooted. I see two big important things about GFANS. One is environmental integrity, obviously, is paramount. And that's why all of those members have committed to measure their portfolio aligned financed emissions, scope three emissions against low or no overshoot scenarios. And so there's credibility on the environmental side through its connection to the UNFCCC and Race to Zero campaign. The other sort of, I think, less talked about is that we will report progress into the FSB as well. So that creates more of a financial flow through. We've all seen Mark's sort of moves before in this regard, and TCFT is a good example, is you build a private sector alliance to practice, to figure out what works, what doesn't, how you do this, and obviously with an eye towards eventually potentially regulated approach to this. And so that that's important. The, we're only in phase one of multiple phases. The first phase is to pledge. The second phase is to plan. The third is to proceed, and the fourth is to publish. So. The next year is going to be critical to determine whether or not we've made progress or not. 
So now more players have committed to these critically important standards and frameworks. But why were some people holding out? What has Curtis Ravenel learned about the mechanics of why some banks and financial institutions dragged their feet or appeared to be doing so? You know how much work it takes to try and figure out if you can actually do this? How many different business lines? What the challenge is, the lack of data, frankly, the lack of standardized approaches and methodologies. These are all like, you know, horrible things for banks, especially for their lawyers who really worry about all of this. So, I mean, we have to commend the banks that did sign up because they did it after having done a serious amount of homework. And it's one thing I think, you know, I always call the tyranny of middle management. I mean, you know, the troops at companies and financial institutions are all millennials and supportive of this stuff. And generally, the CEOs tend to get it. It's the, the middle management that, that is the problem. And so what I found is most of the CEOs said, I want to do this, but I need my business units to go and interrogate whether this is doable, how we'll do it, are we able to try and get this done. So this was not a light decision by these institutions. And so I, you have to commend the ones that have joined and harass the ones that haven't. And just pursuing that in terms of, uh, obviously, some, from my point of view, it's extraordinary how many you did, institutions you did persuade to join. But there was obviously some, there's some gaps in India, China. However, is this a, is this yeah. a focus for you now? Yeah, we're talking about that now. First of all, we are trying to take a little bit of a deep breath. Um, <laughs> we just finished COP. But I think, frankly, it's just to be blunt, it's difficult for firms who are based in jurisdictions that haven't set a net zero 2050 target to come out and say, I'm going to do it, especially when those financial sectors in the government are so intertwined. So, you know, my view is that I think we'll actually, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think over time, as they see financial institutions do this, I think it's, an, you know, the whole point of GFANS, frankly, is to raise policy ambitions. None of this can get done by the financial institutions alone. They've got to have the policy support to do it. And I think, frankly, you'll see a delta over a little bit of time on, on what's doable, what's dependent on policy, and we need to use that delta to push uh, the policy environment. And I'm cautiously optimistic that some of these jurisdictions that have set targets later than 2050 will eventually see that 2050 is doable, and hopefully we can help them with that. If I try and break this in between like, the accounting standards, the taxonomy straight frameworks, and then prosecute the missellers, the big disagreement is in the middle, where it's very clear you don't want to have a top. The US is innovation bottom-up and much less top-down. But I think around the standards, it strikes me that you have made a good amount of progress in the last two weeks to try and get a little bit closer. Uh, I don't know, how, how does that strike you sitting in the States? No, absolutely. I mean, I'm in discussions with the SEC every week, and they're quite aware that if they build something that's totally different than what the rest of the world is building, that that's going to create more problems than it solves. And so, you know, it remains to be seen when they will come out. But it's not by accident, by the way, that TCFD just put out, you know, a few weeks ago an update to their guidance that included things like target setting, transition plans, portfolio alignment. That was, you know, as the world sort of moves to using the TCFD framework as the basis for this regulation, we thought it was important. You know, one thing we know about this field is that anytime you create a standard, it's going to be outdated pretty quickly. It is evolving really quickly. And so, I, you know, my advice to firms, both financial and non-financial alike, is you need to build institutional capacity 
to manage these issues because they will never stop evolving. And so <laughs> don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is about the journey and any other cliche I can come up with. Um, <laughs> this is going to be ongoing. Um, SASB, for example, has a, every three years they review their standards and this is going to have to happen with the regulators as well. The so science is going to change a lot and we haven't even gotten to the social bit yet, right? So there's a lot to do. Maybe we should just take a step back sort of what's going to have changed in the next two years and what are your biggest worries? So just as you think about invest, net zero investing at capital, how is it going to have changed in the next two years? And, and what, what are the maybe dependencies or worries you have? I'll do on the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, the momentum within the private sector, both real economy and financial economy, and the fact that everyone has woken up to this issue and that it has been, I think, appropriately painted as a financial risk will activate the whole market to look at this. On the flip side, we kind of, I mean, this is maybe heresy, we kind of don't know what we're doing yet. <laughs> we're sort of building the plane while we're flying. I think we have directionally the right idea, but there is so much work that needs to be done in getting this right. And I do worry about that. I also think time, this stuff is complicated. It's gonna take time. No one has the patience for it. And then, of course, as an American, I'm extremely worried about basically a, a regression um, in the Biden era. I mean, we we did have the mushrooms popping up. They had all the sleeper cells of climate and uh, sustainable finance people. But they might be put right back in their box um, in the next couple of election cycles. And that, that has me greatly concerned. Curtis Ravenel there. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can hear more special UBS European Conference highlight reel shows. Head to monocle.com for the full archive and keep an eye and ear for more in the weeks ahead. You can also head to UBS.com to find out more about the bank's own commitments. And of course, you can follow this programme at the Monocle website or via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.